to the Sword and the Trowel podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. I don't know what number it is, Tom, but we're moving on down the road. Yes, we are. We're working through the statement on social justice and the gospel, and we are at article number five, which is on sin. So we're going to talk about sin today? Yeah, we're going to talk about sin. We're going to give an insider's perspective. (laughs) Okay. All right. That sounds like you need to go first. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Finally, we're on a topic I know something about. This we can turn this to a priestly confessional booth, right? <laughs> we don't have enough time. We're limited oh, on time boy. here, Jared. So we better stick to the statement. All, All right, right, let me read we, this. Oh, let's go, okay. go ahead. Well, I was going to say before we get in, why, why, why does sin even make it into a, a statement like this? Because without an understanding of sin, there will be no appreciation or understanding of the gospel. I mean, the gospel saves us from sin, and so this is a statement on social justice and the gospel. The reason that the whole statement was put together and issued is out of concern for the gospel. So we don't want to assume those fundamental elements that make the gospel understandable. Mm-hmm. All right. 10-4. Let's do All it. All right. Here we go. we got an affirmation and denial. The affirmation says... We affirm that all people are connected to Adam, both naturally and federally. Therefore, because of original sin, everyone is born under the curse of God's law, and all break his commandments through sin. There is no difference in the condition of sinners due to age, ethnicity, or sex. All are depraved in all their faculties, and all stand condemned before God's law. All human relationships, systems, and institutions have been affected by sin. So everybody's on the same playing field, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think that uh, this is a foundational doctrine as we're going to think about the gospel of Jesus Christ that uh, we are all sinners, as the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. Uh, He is the chief of sinners. We ought to think that way about ourselves, understanding that though there may be differences in age, ethnicity, sex, uh, we all have Adam as our father and therefore uh, stand condemned as we're born in this world and desperately in need of God's grace. So does that... Yeah, does that mean then that we uh, we inherit sin genetically? Is it biologically sent to us? Well, I would want to point to the federally language in the first sentence of that statement to say that it comes to us as a result of our uh, federal union with Adam. Yeah, but it says natural as well. It does. So naturally, I mean, by virtue of being in the human race, descending from sinful people, uh, we do inherit sin. But more theologically significant, I think, is what you're driving at is this federal relationship. What's meant by the a, a federal connection to Adam? How should we think about that? Is this some, explain that to us. Yeah, this concerns covenant theology and that Uh, God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. It was a covenant of works. 
It was one that was not kept, and as a result of that, uh, sin has entered into the world. Every person is born in sin, uh, not only with a corrupt nature, but also guilty before God in need of uh, righteousness, in need of being declared righteous, uh, and then in need of uh, a work of practical righteousness within us that we might be conformed into the image of Christ. So would you say that, uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned? There you go. That sounds like Bible to me, man. <laughs> yeah, I would say that, too. Actually, I'm just saying what has been said. Uh, Romans 5, 12 through 18 is the classic passage here. Uh, verse 19, I guess, included in that. And um, I don't really think we can understand the the whole connection between Christ's uh, life of obedience and atoning death in behalf of sinners. We can't understand it as fully as we ought without understanding how Paul summarizes it in that passage. And so this is where the idea of a federal headship of Adam comes from, that when, when God created Adam, he didn't create him just as an individual. He created him as a representative of the whole human race. And, and when Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned in him, with him. And so you know, we teach our children at church, and I'm sure you do this for your kids. I did my kids when they were growing up, that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And that's exactly what Paul says there, that well, through one man, death came through sin. Death spread to all men because all sinned. And that is something that has taken place. What would you say if I said, I don't totally like the idea of <laughs> being held accountable for what that Adam did. Why didn't he just take care of his own stuff? Let me take care of my own stuff. So uh, it's too bad. Just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I thought I mean, you could take me to the Lord Jesus. I, 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 go, I was me. going to, I want to have a little fun now. with you first. I want to have a little fun with you first. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. You know, we, I don't like that. I don't remember voting on that. Well, everybody thinks fairness whenever it comes to, uh, Adam's sin, and, you know, I didn't commit Adam's sin. Why am I held accountable? Why does his sin in any way impinge upon me? But nobody wants to use that same argument when it comes to justification by grace through what Christ has accomplished. And it's it, it works in exactly the same way, that we get what Christ accomplished, what Christ did, when by faith we are joined to him. And we also get credited with what Adam did when by nature we are joined to him. And so if we stay in our natural relationship to our first head, Adam, then we will experience the condemnation that properly awaits all sin. But if by grace we're transferred out of that uh, relationship with our first Adam and, and established under a new headship of Jesus Christ, then we get the benefits of what that second Adam has accomplished. Mm. The statement really drives at our being depraved in all our faculties, as that second to last sentence of the affirmation states, and that we stand condemned before God's law, which really distinguishes um, those who would sign the statement and agree with it um, from people in the world and the way they think about shortcomings today. As it relates to social justice, you can see that 
what I've liked about our conversation last week about God's law is that you can see those who would advocate, uh, and I'm, I'm meaning in an entirely um, unchristian way, we're not talking about genuine justice and seeking justice in the world, but those who would advocate for a whole system of social justice, you you see they're developing a whole different system of justification. They're developing a whole entirely new law separate from God's law and then holding people accountable to it. And when it comes to sin, well, you think, well, I've got some shortcomings, but I can somehow um, overcome my shortcomings. I can overcome my my um, uh, failures by living justly in the world by by meeting the standard that I have now created. But this statement would come and undercut all of that by advancing the doctrine of total depravity, putting it forth. No, we're not just a little bad, and there's no way that we're going to be able to do some good in the world in order to get right. We are entirely depraved. We stand condemned before God's law. I think that that is a key uh, founding doctrine as we're thinking about what's going on in the world today. Absolutely. It's uh, and it's crucial, n- not just for this conversation, but it's crucial for all of our evangelistic ways of thinking conversations, because until a person is lost, he will never have uh, any interest or sense of need in being saved. And if you change the standard, then you can manage it, as you just said. I mean, I can run a hundred yards in seven seconds flat. If you'll let me define what a hundred yards is. And so I can be righteous and I can be good or good enough. If you'll let me define what constitutes righteousness or goodness. But if we're going to deal with God and what God has revealed, then we have to say what this statement tries to summarize is that we all stand condemned before his law. That's what sin is. It's lawlessness. And as a result, that last sentence, I think, is also very important. Sometimes this gets lost uh, on those who have critiqued the statement, at least a few of the guys that I've read that have engaged in uh, some uh, pretty detailed critique. It seems like they've not picked up on this point. Yeah, you want to talk about systems, Tom. (laughs) Well, hey, I believe what is written here. All human relationships, systems, and institutions have been affected by sin. Do you believe I, that systems have been affected by sin? Let the record show I believe in systemic sin. Oh, wow. All right. I believe it. What's that because, do now? How does that shake down? What's that mean? What does it not mean? That means that uh, if I can quote that uh, well known theologian Jimbo Fisher, he says, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I am in Aggie land. He says, This ain't no utopia. Okay, that's what he told his players during fall camp. This ain't no utopia. I mean, the man was. We're off the rails now. The man was systemic injustice. Let's hear it. Absolutely, he was laying down theological truth. This ain't no utopia. I mean, we would go a long way in helping ourselves think rightly if we just remember that this is not utopia. It's not going to be utopia, and all these utopian visions that get foisted upon us and we get lured by need to be seen for what they are. And uh, they're, they're just illusions. So that's what I mean by that, that this world is broken. There's nothing in this world that has not been touched by sin and brokenness. And there are consequences to that, of course. Now, obviously, there are some consequences in some arenas 
uh, some situations, some areas, some contexts that are far worse than others. And we shouldn't just say, okay, sarah, sarah, because we're in a broken world. We just look at brokenness and say, well, you know, tough luck, that's the way it is. Not at all. Now, the kingdom of God does indeed hearken us to the future when Christ will return and everything will be made right and there will be no more sin, including no more uh, systemic sin. And so where we have the gospel, where the gospel goes today, we are heralding that coming day by preaching Christ and showing the restoration that comes in Christ as sinners are born again and find forgiveness and new life in him. And as we then live as Christians, then we start living differently in this world and we testify to the reality of this invisible kingdom. Yeah. Well, and that makes good sense to me in in thinking about institutions and systems being affected by sin, whether I think about my family or any organization I'm a part of, surely there's going to be uh, sinful realities within that family, within that institution, within that organization. And to the degree uh, that I play a part in that or I am a leader in that, therefore responsible for the the people within that institution or organization, I want to be diligent to root out all sin that I can through prayer, through leadership, through confession, through honesty and integrity. Um, so seeing that it this is not a utopia, that surely every institution, every organization is affected by sin, and we want to fight against that, and they're affected to varying levels depending on the institutions and the systems. So Absolutely. I think that's a good word. Absolutely. About the denial? Yeah, let's do that. Why don't you read that? We deny that other than the previously stated connection to Adam, any person is morally culpable for any for another person's sin. Although families, groups, and nations can sin collectively and cultures can be predisposed to particular sins, subsequent generations share the collective guilt of their ancestors only if they approve and embrace or attempt to justify those sins. Before God, each person must repent and confess his or her own sins in order to receive forgiveness. We further deny that one's ethnicity establishes any necessary connection to any particular sin. Man, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. Yeah. So you're not with affirmation. <laughs> so you're not morally culpable for my sin. No, not ever. Don't think so. Don't think so. Maybe not. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> too bad for me. Right. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, this is basically trying to establish what Ezekiel 18 teaches uh, that God does hold each of us individually responsible for our own sin and that God will not hold me responsible for another sin, thinking outside of that federal connection to Adam. Mm. But that we doesn't get mean... some interesting. Go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. We I'll get some you. interesting. We get some interesting waters. You're talking about these cultures that can be predisposed to particular sins. <laughs> yeah, all Cretans are liars. You want to you want to take it from the abstract down to the practical and give us an example of such a culture. Yeah, all Cretans are liars. All Americans are materialists. Oh, boy. Don't you talk about me being culpable as an American for materialism. (laughs) Well, I do think our culture has its own pet sins that we have grown comfortable with, just like uh, other cultures. I think that that passage in Titus 1 is is crucial on this. Paul can say, he can quote. Now, I I know there's an interpretation of this that even a good friend of mine 
has tried to make the case for that I've been unpersuaded by that uh, Paul here is simply quoting a guy. He's not affirming what the guy actually said. But I I think the simplest reading of that is Paul is actually affirming the, the poet that he's quoting there. So all Cretans are liars. And I think we can say, yeah, okay, American culture has as its pet sin materialism. And we could probably go beyond that too. We could talk about laziness or gluttony or entitlement. And that doesn't mean everybody in America is guilty of that sin, but it does mean that that would be a, uh, a way to kind of depict our society, our modern society uh, collectively. Right. I think that that is a very important statement, this denial, because this is where a lot of the confusion lies, in my opinion, um, that as a person, I'm morally culpable for my sin, not another person's mm-hmm. sin. Um, even so, as a culture, one in which I live, uh, America certainly were, were predisposed to uh, sexual lust. It's just the right. sexual perversion everywhere. Um, well, I need to think I live in this culture and therefore I have a responsibility. I'd be comfortable with that language. I have a responsibility to protect myself from it, right? To repentably mm-hmm. quick, uh, to, to not be led away, um, by this culture in which I live, not being conformed to the world, protecting my family and, and, um, and church, but also thinking about the culture or, um, the nation or the group, and thinking about my responsibility to seek the uh, welfare of this uh, this culture and the sanctification of it through the preaching of the gospel, while not getting confused and then um, taking some kind of moral culpability individually for the sin of others. I, there's so much there, but I think yeah. this statement gets us down the road and thinking well about those things. I agree, because, I mean, we live in a culture of death, too. I mean, we're murdering unborn children at the rate of 3,000 a day. And it's it's horrific to uh, even conceive of how calloused we have become to that as a culture. And my children have never known anything but uh, the legal legalized murder of unborn children. They've just grown up with it. And so, yeah, we are complicit in that as American citizens living today. But that doesn't mean that I am personally guilty of, of abortion and that I must personally repent for having committed abortion. I've not, but I am a part of this culture of death that has turned it into an industry and celebrates it. Tom, we want to talk about a book here in this second segment. We've been talking about different books. Today, we want to talk about Ted Tripp's Shepherding a Child's Heart. Boy, this is some good stuff. This is a little gold mine. Yeah. And um, I have personally benefited from Ted's book. I remember sitting in a little small group, and we were watching uh, a very old video series of shepherding child's heart where ted's on there and he's talking he's teaching and he's working through the the 
first kind of material of the book. And one of the guys in that small group said, Hey, I thought this was going to be on parenting, not about my heart before God. (laughs) We had a good laugh about that. He does a great job of showing, boy, if you want to be a better parent and just be a better Christian, it's going to require you dealing with your own heart before God and then seeking to shepherd your children's hearts with the truth of God's word, um, talking to them about repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've helped on a number of levels. One of the things that I've really benefited from Ted's teaching is the way he talks about the circle of blessing in its relationship to discipline of children. And he talks about even taking out a chart and explaining it to your kids, drawing a circle on there and saying, this is a circle of blessing. And inside this circle, uh, all kinds of good things come to you. And this circle is God's law. It is his uh, standards. And when you break God's law, you go outside of this circle and he says, what's out here? What's outside of the circle? Well, all kinds of dangers, all kinds of things that can harm you. And so the rod of correction exists to discipline you back into the circle of blessing. So we discipline you because we love you. Mom and daddy don't want you to be out here where you would get hurt, do we? No, no. So they understand, the children can then understand how uh, discipline is the way that parents love their children. You know, we think today that, well, I can't discipline my children. I love them too much. Well, that's not (laughs) what the Proverbs say. Proverbs (laughs) say that you don't discipline them because you hate them. You know, do not hate him. Uh, the father disciplines us because he loves us, and we ought to discipline our children because we love them. So he does a great job of walking through that. It's not the only thing that he talks about in the book, but that's a huge component in its relationship to the heart. You know, knowing that um, the the rod of correction drives folly from the heart of the child. This is about uh, dealing with the heart and trying to impart wisdom. To our children, I can't tell you how many conversations we've had when uh, sin has come about in our household where it's being dealt with. And uh, I can look at my uh, sons and daughters and say, Daddy knows exactly what that's like. When Daddy was a little boy, Daddy did the exact same things. And let me tell you one uh, who has never done that. There's only one. Mm -hmm. His name's Jesus Christ. And turning our attention to the Lord, all in the context of loving discipline. So those are just some of the fruits that I've enjoyed from shepherding a child's heart. Yeah, I think the thing that helped me most uh, about this book, Donna and I, um, I mean, I was just terrified of being a parent. And so when we had our first child, Donna was at the hospital and was being released on Sunday morning. And so I was on the way to the hospital to pick her and Sarah up and stopped by the church where we were members at the time, they had a little book stand and bought uh, Bruce Ray's book, Withhold Not Correction. And it's like a, it was a security blanket for me. I just wanted to have it in my car when I'm driving my child home. And that book served us so well. And we read other books that were recommended to us. But all along the way, as Sarah was two, three, four, five years old, uh, we just sensed that. Um, we were missing something, you know, that we were focused on externals and there's more to it. And we were beginning to think through this whole matter of inward uh, delight in obedience. And then uh, Ted's book came out. I think we had maybe two or three kids at that time. 
And it was so helpful to us. And what, one of the most significant things of what you just described is it helped us to realize that every opportunity for correction was an opportunity for the gospel. It was an opportunity to set forth Christ. This is why we need a Savior. Mom and Dad sin too. And though what you've done is wrong, it's grievous, and needs to be repented of, needs to be corrected. That's why we have a Savior. And Jesus never did these things. And he is willing to give you righteousness. He's willing to give you forgiveness to pay for your sins. And so that that was super helpful for me. Another thing that I remember uh, that was very helpful about the book was the relationship between control and influence. And that your control is high when they're young and your influence is low. But as they get older, your control is diminished and you need to be hoping and making deposits into your influence so that you can continue to influence the way that we've kind of worked that out practically as parents is just described as going from um, commander when your children are real little to coach as they get, you know, older, middle age or middle, um, middle school uh, to becoming a consultant as they begin trans- transitioning into young adulthood and adulthood. And if we can remember that, man, it's helpful because when they're, 20, 21 years old, you know, I can be tempted to revert back to that commander mode. And it just, uh, it's not there. That, that's not the relationship. I've got to rely more on the influence than I do on control. So Ted helped me with that tremendously. And you've got six kids. What happens when they grow up like yours and they start having these things called grandkids? Oh, man. Then it becomes <laughs> all worth it. <laughs> then uh, you realize just how wonderful they are. So the grandkids are great and uh, all the rules change. So I don't I don't shepherd the heart of my grandchildren the same way I shepherded the heart of my children. Yeah, you shepherd them with uh with lollipops <laughs> and cake breakfast, those kind of things. I want to I don't want to undermine what my parents what their parents are doing, my children are doing. But uh, I do I do want to supplement on that that side that uh shows the, the joy and, and goodness and wonder of life. Tom, we have a third section here in which we are talking about the law of God. Our plan is to talk about all kinds of different commandments that God gives us in his word, trying to identify the goodness of his commandments the way that christ fulfills them the way that we ought to fulfill them by faith we begin working through the ten commandments and now we come to the sixth commandment number six number six you You shall not you shall not murder oh good you can say finally one i have it i have it broken right (laughs) you've been so clean to that sixth commandment jesus upheld the other nine for you but you got it (laughs) yeah that's right you know man i I haven't i haven't put anybody in the grave yet so uh i'm good all right so that's the way many of us think about the sixth the big sixth uh what's really behind the sixth commandment here well just like all the commandments god's going at the heart i mean that's what the tenth commandment demonstrates to us. I think I like to think of Paul in Romans 7 as he kind of gives us a little bit of his internal testimony 
about how uh, he kept the law, you know, and he didn't really understand what sin was till the law came, sin revived, and I died, he said. And he would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. I think what was going on with Paul is he's just ticking off, man, all the commandments, all the things that you're not supposed to do, have no other God before me. Okay, check, I've done that. You know, uh, no idols, check, I've done that. I'll take the Lord's name in vain, check, I've done that. I'll find another check, I've done that. Uh, remember the Sabbath day, check, I've done that. I'll find another check, I've done that. No murder, check, I've done that. He goes down the list till he gets to 10. Don't covet. And it's like, whoa. You don't covet. You know, coveting is not something you do with your hands. It's something that comes from inside. And, and that becomes then an indication of what God has always been concerned about, which David says, truth in the inward parts. So this commandment, six commandments, concerned not just about not physically murdering someone, but valuing, honoring, promoting life and avoiding everything in us that would tend toward the diminishing of the life of an image bearer of God. Mm. It's hard to talk about this commandment without thinking about abortion in our land, which is such an abomination that we simply deal with uh, day after day. But would you go here to do not murder as you think about the Christian's obligation to um, preach against the slaughter of the unborn? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what it is. We are taking every abortion takes the life of a, a creature made in God's image. And that's that's so demonstrable now by modern science. I mean, the, the advances that have been made just over the last 30 years in technology that allows us to see the life within the womb. Uh, oftentimes before, the mother who is carrying that life is aware that the life is within her. There can be no denial. That is human life. Everyone understands that today. And so when you take human life with a high hand, as abortion does, it is an assault upon God, and it is indeed a violation of the Sixth Commandment. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfills this commandment uh, for us, and he does so in a number of ways. We, But as we think about the work he did at the on the cross, laying down his life, his life, um, when we are the ones that should have died, he's the one who has secured eternal life for us, um, has um, protected us, does protect us, and uh, seeks our welfare. When we think of Christ, it seems that in every way possible, he is the true upholder of this sixth commandment for us, so we should trust him and seek to follow him in not murdering, not hating our brothers in our heart doesn't mean that we um, don't get angry. We know in the New Testament we hear be angry and do not sin. There's a way for us to be angry and not sin. We should hate what is evil. We should love what is good. Um, We should protect others and promote life. Yeah, absolutely. And as Christians, as those who have received the benefits of one who has given up his life, laid down his life for us. Uh, We of all people should be honoring the lives of other image bearers. We should do this with a sense 
that you know we have been rescued, we have been redeemed, we were lost, we were condemned, and we've been found, we've been justified. How in the world then can we allow ourselves to be demeaning toward other human beings, or do anything that would detract from their significance and their um, having been created in the image of our God? You have been listening to the Sword and the Trowel podcast with Jared Longshore and Tom Askell. This podcast is produced by Founders Ministries. For more information, visit www.founders.org. To hear more from the Sword and the Trowel, you can follow Founders on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or by subscribing to our email list at www.founders.org. Thank you.